0: this morning's sermon is why we must strive to enter through the narrow door why we must strive to enter through the narrow door on sunday mornings we're working our way through luke's gospel verse by verse we find ourselves in luke 13 we will get through verse 24 this morning so luke 13 through 24. why don't you go ahead and stand with me for the reading of god's word it says jesus went on his way through towns and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem, and someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. You may be seated. Father, we thank you, like Don said, that there are no wasted words in Scripture, that each one of them, perfect Divinely inspired, set there on the page um, from you and according to your will. I thank you for these important verses where Jesus really turns the question back on the person asking it and invites all of us to consider whether we are saved, uh, whether we are pressing through that narrow door that's available. And so I think these verses are uh, important, Lord. I was greatly encouraged studying them. I pray that all of the work that you would have them do in our hearts would be accomplished this morning and all the wonderful truths in them would be made clear to your people i come to you as a flawed vessel lord and perfect preacher um, but ask despite any of my weaknesses that by your grace your word would do all the work that you desire in your people's hearts and then uh, the just you would do justice to these verses through your holy spirit's work and ministry through as the word is preached and then as you meet with each person here we thank you for the supernatural work that occurs every time your word goes forward lord it's a great encouragement to me that it doesn't rest entirely on my shoulders that your holy spirit is ministering to each person here i pray if there's anyone who hasn't entered through that narrow door that uh, you would uh, convict them about that, that that would be made evident to them thank you for this time pray for you to be pleased with it and we ask this in jesus name amen if you take your mind back to my last sermon in luke which was a a few weeks ago by the way i appreciate pastor nathan and jake covering for me the last two weeks i wish i would have realized earlier in my ministry just how important it is for my wife to have those about two weeks off or maybe even more after a baby is born i jumped back into work too quickly uh, sometimes after a baby was born Uh, it's not easy for me to be honest with you to just sit back and not um, teach or preach whether it's sunday school or sunday night even one sunday night i asked pastor nathan if i could just teach because i had something on my heart i wanted to share But it is important. I I spent the last two weeks basically playing mother to eight children, wondering how my wife does that every week while she was able to rest in the basement. Um, Well, that's where our master bedroom is. She wasn't in the basement for any other reason. (laughs) Just realized that sounded bad. Yeah, after she has a baby, we put her down in the basement, you know, for a couple weeks and just say, hey, stay down there. You know, no, not like that. That's where our bedroom is, so anyway so she was down there uh resting and recovering and i'm getting back in the swing of things about two i'm preaching and then uh two two weeks from now i'll pretty much be back into my regular meetings and so forth with everyone so i thought it was a wonderful sermon from jake last sunday encourage you to listen to it if you haven't already appreciated pastor nathan's sermon and his teaching in sunday school i think i'll be might be taking over sunday school in in a few weeks but anyway um if you can remember back to before the baby was born i preached on the two parables that preceded this the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven, well, those parables are making the same point that the kingdom of God is going to continue expanding and growing, basically until it envelops the earth and everyone comes to the knowledge and glory of the Lord. Now, if you think about those two parables, it, what, what, is it, what does it make you think about everyone? What does it make you think about people's salvation? Don't those parables kind of give the impression that everyone is going to be saved, As you hear about this kingdom just growing and enveloping the entire world doesn't it cause you to think that everyone's going to be saved well right when you're about to think that you reach these verses and these verses present the balance so look with me in verse 22. jesus is traveling and he is asked this question verse 22 he went on his way through towns and villages teaching and journeying toward jerusalem verse 23, someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, what do you think about that question? Or let me say it like this, is that an interesting question to you? Yeah, I I look at this question and I see this as one that I have. I see this as one that I've asked different times, wondered about. I think this was a common question in Jesus's day because the scribes would have this conversation with each other about how many people would be saved so probably what happened i mean a little speculative here but the scribes would talk about this how many people would be saved whether it would be few or many jesus is a respected teacher and so they go to him and they ask him the same question that the scribes have been asked or the scribes have discussed will there be many people saved or will it be, be few and just as it was a common question in jesus's day i think it's a common question in our day i suspect all of us at different times have wondered this Now, before we look at Jesus' answer, I want to ask you one other thing from a recent sermon. Do you remember when I told you that Jesus would often be asked a question, but he wouldn't answer the question that was asked? Look one chapter to the left at Luke 12, verse 41. Peter asked Jesus, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? For us or for everyone? How many possible answers are there to this question? There's two. If jesus is going to answer the question that's asked he's going to say for you or he's going to say for everyone instead he says who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his stuff is that the answer to the question the guy asked no it's not and so there's these times you almost wonder if it's a bad translation which it isn't but did, or did, was jesus not listening or did he miss the question that was asked and that's not it at all instead jesus would receive this question but he could look past the question to people's what yeah he could look past the question to their hearts he knew what was behind the question or maybe a better way to say this he knew what they needed to hear and it would often be more important or beneficial to them than the answer to the question that they were asking so he would give them what they truly needed to know because he knew I think it's John 2 24 he knew all men and what was in men's hearts so he'd share something else with them this is another example in Luke 13 someone asked if there's going to be a few people saved And what's the answer how many answers are there to the question that this man asked will there be few people saved how many answers are there two yeah yes or no it's a pretty straightforward straightforward question look at the rest of verse 23 jesus said to them and then verse 24 he says strive to enter through the narrow door for many i tell you will seek to enter and will not be able does this look like the answer to the question the guy asked no definitely not it doesn't look like the answer to the question he asked but it's the more important question that actually this guy needed to be asking himself and i would say it looks to the more important question or i could even say most important question all of us should be asking ourselves so this gentleman delivers this question to jesus and it's like jesus puts it back on him and all the other listeners and tells them that they need to be asking themselves a question and that question is am I saved this man says will few people be saved and Jesus says we, you know we don't really need to talk about that right now in fact if you want to talk about other people's salvation maybe we could do that but down the road because the first thing we need to talk about is your salvation the question at this moment is not how many people will be saved but are you saved you figure out the answer to this question about your salvation and then we can worry about the salvation of other people so in a sense i would say even though jesus didn't directly answer whether few people will be saved he indirectly answered that not many people will be saved because he said for many i tell you will seek to enter and will not be able to so he didn't say whether few people are saved but he did say that there are many who will not be saved and this brings us to lesson one Many people will not be able to enter through the narrow door. Many people will not be able to enter through the narrow door. We were at our elder retreat about a month ago, I suppose, and we we're having this conversation about salvation and the number of people saved, and Vicki said something about few people being saved, and she said that she didn't like that and didn't understand why that's the case but it is what the bible teaches and i would say i don't i don't like it either but whenever we come to god's word it's not a a time to um, hold to our preferences it's it's not a time that we embrace what we would intuitively think it's it's not a time that we get to decide what it is or isn't true or say i don't like this and so i'm not going to believe that because regardless of what we think or regardless of what we would want to think because I. I think we all want to think what the lots of people would be saved maybe if it was up to us everyone would end up being saved regardless of what other people say regardless of what any of the polls tell us some of these Gallup polls come out and it's like how many Americans claim to be Christians and it's like 80 or 90 percent or something like that and all of these people claiming to be Christians but the truth is many people are not going to heaven there are many people who are not Christians and these verses in Luke have some similarities it's not Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount is in chapter 6. you don't have to turn there but Luke 6 contains Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount but these verses right here they do share some similarities to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. So these are two different situations so there were times that jesus said things that sounded similar and sometimes it's one gospel writers recounting of that sermon or teaching but this is not these verses are not the exact same or these are not part of the sermon on the mount when in matthew seven thirteen, jesus said enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few and so the, these verses in luke are similar to that the words many and few are the ones that that jump out to me it describes a number of people who are going to hell versus heaven and so if someone ever asked how many people are going to hell versus heaven you could say many versus few that's as far as i can tell that's the that's the closest we have to an answer in scripture that many people are going to hell few people are going to heaven As far as what percent that is when we talk many versus few is it 60 40 70 30 you know 80 20 maybe 90 10. i don't i don't know i just know that it's very sobering to me when i read that in fact sobering might be an understatement somewhat terrifying should be terrifying to us to learn that many people are going to hell and few people are going to heaven let me ask you one thing to keep in mind here tell you one reason that this is so important to keep in mind when we look around and we see so many people who are rejecting christ when we see so many people who uh deny that he is the savior or they're involved in false religions it's it's tempting for us to think what what is it tempting for us to think when you feel like you're in the minority and there's this huge majority what can it be tempting to think well i mean could they all be wrong could i be right could all these people really be kept out of heaven if there are this many other religions in the world could all of these people be wrong could they all be going to hell or or was jesus lying when he said that he is the only way and perhaps if we're all trying and we're all worshiping kind of like something you might hear on oprah if we're all doing our best and there are all these different ways to go to heaven you can start to think that but here's the thing if that was the case that all those other religions were right or all these other ways went to heaven then that would tell us that what Jesus is saying here is wrong what we see that can tempt us to think that we're wrong and all these other people are right would be the opposite of what Jesus says so let me say it like this what Jesus says here if we see that play out it should look like most people are going to hell if what jesus said here is true we should see the world being filled with many christ rejecting people if what jesus said here is true we shouldn't see the world filled with mostly christians if that was the case then that would mean that what jesus said here is incorrect But instead i would say this when i read what jesus said here i look around and i see the world agreeing with his words i see the truth of christ's statement here if jesus said many will seek to enter and be able to many will seek to enter and successfully will then we would have to look around with what basically confusion and say well wait a second it doesn't look that way to me it doesn't look like all these people are Christians but if all these people were right if all these people were going to heaven if all these other religions did not lead people to hell then it would seem like the opposite of what Jesus said here so I would just say this when you start to get discouraged or frustrated or you start to feel tempted to believe that maybe Uh, all these other people couldn't be wrong go back to christ's words here because christ's words give us the encouragement we need to believe that we are on that narrow way and we are heading through that narrow door and this is why we cannot judge spiritual truth by what we cannot judge spiritual truth by popularity we cannot judge spiritual spiritual truth by majority. We can't determine whether we're right or wrong because we're in the minority. In fact, the truth would be this, if you are in the majority, that would be the evidence that you are what? Wrong. If most of the people are going one direction, that's the direction you don't want to go according to Christ's words, those are the people going to hell. The fact that everyone is doing it is the evidence that that is not the narrow door, that's the the wide door, the wide way, the wide road that leads to destruction. And because it can be discouraging to feel like you're in the minority and so many people disagree with you, and because I I have a uh, a dispensational or a pre-tribulational view I, I a pre-millennial view let me say it like that I don't think the world is getting better I think the world is getting getting worse it's going to be even more tempting when you're in that very small percent to start wondering am I really am I right really right or am I wrong could all these other people be wrong and so I want to give you some encouragement for as things get worse the truth that you can hold on to and this brings us to lesson two there's always only been a remnant there's always only been a remnant god's people have always only been the minority god's people have always only been part of a remnant if we ever feel like we are in the majority there are only two possibilities one possibility is we are wrong the other possibility is we're in the millennium and christ is uh he has returned bodily from heaven to earth he has set up his throne in jerusalem and he is physically ruling and reigning there and then we see the true and greater fulfillment of those parables with the kingdom of god spreading and filling the entire earth where the majority of people on the earth will be believers but until then God's people will always be a remnant let me get you consider get you to consider how this has been the case throughout human history by asking you to think about some familiar accounts and maybe this can be an encouragement to you that this is not new but that this is uh, the way that it has always been what do you think that it was like for Noah and his family when they built the ark how discouraging or terrible must that have been for him? One hundred twenty years, him and his sons, working on that ark in the middle of dry land. It's never rained. Uh, the the in thoughts and intents of every man's heart is on wickedness continually. How do you think they ridiculed him? How do you think Noah was mocked? And I don't know that he knew that it was going to rain. I don't know how much revelation Noah had about what the future held. He's just building this ark by faith. Second Peter two five says that he was a preacher of righteousness. Could there have been a worse or more discouraging time to have to preach God's word than prior to the flood? But then how many people ended up being saved through that flood? Eight. Some commentators speculate there were billions, not millions, billions of people on the earth in that day because they lived for so long. Lot and his wife, Jake preached on this account some months ago. They were part of that remnant that escaped Sodom how many people escaped Sodom how many maybe thousands hundreds thousands of people live there whatever number you assign it's a very small percent it's definitely a remnant that was able to survive the fire that rained down from heaven and destroyed that city and then you can't even say that that remnant survived because at least one of them Lot's wife she looked back and when she looked back it's like she immediately rejected the narrow door and just put herself on that wide path that leads to destruction right it almost looked like Lot's wife is heading toward that narrow door she looks back I don't know if she looked back um, physically or looked back in her heart I've generally taken it to mean that when she looked back she looked back inwardly longing for Sodom and what she was leaving and she just rejected that narrow door and headed for destruction one gentleman who was so discouraged in his day he said he was the only one who's that he's like my the remnant I'm part of is so small it's a remnant of one Who's that? Elijah's like, I am the only faithful Israelite. And then you say, Oh, well, it's not really a remnant because there was how many? There was seven thousand. Seven it's it's relative. Seven thousand is a remnant when you're talking about millions of Israelites. There were millions of Israelites, and even if seven thousand, which initially can sound like this huge number, had not bowed their knee to Baal you're still talking about only a remnant that was faithful to god jeremiah the last prophet to the jews before they were taken into exile he had to preach to these rebellious people for 40 years known as the weeping prophet probably because of he had to witness the destruction of jerusalem but equally because of the way that he was mistreated by all of these people no recorded converts under his ministry there's a record of a few faithful people there was his scribe baruch there was the Rechabites. um daniel and his friends we know were taken out of jerusalem at that time they were obviously faithful to god but still we're talking about a handful of people here out of millions still only a remnant you jump forward to paul's day and then paul writes about the salvation of the jews romans nine twenty seven. he looks back and he says isaiah cried out concerning israel though the number of the sons of israel be as the sand of the sea I mean that is a huge number there will only be a remnant of them that is saved that's not my interpretation that's what Paul said he said even if the number of the Israelites is as large as the sand of the sea only a remnant of them will be saved and then regarding Paul's day you say well did it get better as you reached Paul's day romans eleven five. 5 he said at the present time at the present time that paul wrote this he said there's only what there is only a remnant that has been chosen by grace and so there's always only a remnant there has always only been a narrow door that only a few people strive to enter now i'll share something with you interesting about this when I started preparing this sermon because it's been some weeks since i've been able to preach the word for strive it's the word what's the word pastor nathan it's the word for agonizing You are talking about that in your sermon that's what's going on here he's talking about agonizing that word for strive is it's related to our word agony that's how intensely we're to push through this narrow door and to fail to do so is to fail to be part of this remnant the greek word for remnant it's who palami and it means it actually means sounds like the word remnant it means remains the word remnant the greek word for remnant means remains or what is left particularly after there's a great calamity or judgment let me say that one more time the greek word for remnant means particularly what is left or the remains after a great calamity or judgment and this is fitting because when do we often see a remnant we see it after a great calamity or we see it after a judgment the remnants become clearest in scripture when they follow a judgment how did we end up seeing Noah and his family as a remnant there had to first be a flood how do we end up seeing Lot there had to be the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah the extermination of the Canaanites produce the remnant of Rahab and the Gibeonites how how do you how do you end up seeing in the book of Joshua the remnant or faithful of Rahab and the Gibeonites except that the Canaanites are going to be exterminated that's what brings that remnant into view the Kenites they might not be as well known as a remnant but the Kenites were those individuals in 1 Samuel 15 who were removed when God gave the command for Saul to exterminate all of the Amalekites well what did it take for the Kenites to be shown as a remnant who were removed it took the destruction or extermination of the Amalekites what was it that produced the remnant of faithful Jews in Jeremiah's day or in Daniel's day it was the Babylonian exile it was that judgment with the babylonians coming in destroying jerusalem the temple um, executing so many uh, probably millions of jews and my point in mentioning this is simple you can feel very discouraged being part of the remnant but when the judgment takes place and it will that is when the remnant is revealed until then the wheat and the tares are together aren't they until then the remnant just looks like it's sort of you know blending in and you can be terribly discouraged or frustrated by the things that are going on around you wondering when that remnant is going to become evident and it's not going to be until the judgment the final judgment takes place and when it's revealed you will be glad that you did strive to enter through the narrow door or let's say agonize Agonizamai is that word for agony. That's how intensely we would push or strive to enter through that door. Charles Spurgeon said, You will see a considerable difference between seeking and striving. You are not merely advised to seek, you are urgently bidden to strive. John Trapp said strive even to an agony or as they did for the Garland in the Olympic Games to which the word agonizmi here used seems to elude because this word it had the idea of a struggle or a prize fight it come it actually comes from the sports arena where you have these athletes who are giving their very best to win this contest you think about individuals when the Olympics took place and all of the years that they have committed you know how many thousands of hours and how much of their lives are given leading up to this to these games of 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 absolute exertion to be able to compete at that level and this is what paul's saying he says essentially spiritually speaking there should be this sort of exertion or effort to enter through the narrow door now we've kind of reached something possibly after me talking about it for that long or in those terms a question that you might have been asking up to this point and it's uh the question I would say that I was asking when I first read these verses because let me say it like this if Jesus says that we should strive to enter through the narrow door then it almost sounds like we're saved by what yeah our works or our our human effort if you it's almost like I'm saying just try hard enough to be saved. If you will try hard enough you will be saved and it's terrifying if you do not try hard enough you will not be saved you will go to hell that's almost what it sounds like doesn't it so considering we know that we are justified by faith or we are saved by grace through faith and not by works how do we understand this and it's kind of exciting to me when i come to passages that i look at and i have these questions you know i'll read read on well usually i've read um You know months out i try to be familiar with the verses but i'll read stuff and then i get to have that whole week to commit myself to trying to understand what those verses are about and this is one of those times because i look at this and i see jesus saying strive to enter through the narrow door and i just think lord this is going to be an enjoyable week of studying (laughs) take all my commentaries down and start looking through because i know if we're saved by grace through faith how can i reconcile that with what i'm seeing jesus say here why is striving required to enter through the narrow door when we are not saved by our own effort and this brings us to lesson three striving is required to enter through the narrow door because part one the door is narrow strive to enter through the narrow door because the door is narrow have you ever tried to fit through a narrow place before it's exhausting isn't it well we went camp when we were at family camp a few months ago we went to um, I don't know what the word would be I can't say hike we weren't hiking but we were going through one of the local caves and there were these very small spaces that require ducking and crawling and how does it feel when you're ducking and crawling trying to fit through this very narrow space it's exhausting you have to strive to make it through it requires all this effort we know what it means to move through a narrow space physically I describe that and you say okay well that makes sense if we were in a cave spiritually speaking what does it mean spiritually to strive to fit through a narrow space Jesus is referring spiritually speaking to the narrowness of the way to heaven people think that there are all these roads that lead to heaven people think that as long as you're religious as long as you believe in God as long as you're doing your best as long as you're worshiping according to the way that you have been taught then you're going to go to heaven if that was true that would not be narrow that way is way too wide that basically says that as long as people are are sincere as long as they're doing their best which nobody does their best we're all still sinning we're all still failing then you'd get to go to heaven Think of all the different ways that people try to get to heaven or maybe their version of heaven for some whatever they call it if it's nirvana you've got hindus and they're they're trying one way or they're trying one door you've got buddhists trying another door you've got muslims trying another door you've got those religions that look closer to christianity i've become even more convinced through my time with mormons as much as much affection as god might have given me for them and i don't think it's too much to say that god's given me a love for some of the Mormons that I've spent time with they are not trying the same door as us they do not believe the same gospel we do I think I think that they think they do but when they describe it it is not justification by faith you've got Muslims going another way you think of people maybe in, involved in New Age practices or the occult and they're trying another door all of these people are striving to enter and many of them are agonizing. Many of them are working very hard. There was at least one time when I was talking to the Mormons when they gave me a little window into how hard they were trying and how discouraging and frustrating their ministry was going door to door like that. And so, I think they are agonizing. They are striving, but the door is narrow. Jesus is the only door that works. When you are talking about one single door you are talking about narrowness here you are not trying about any amount of sincerity being able to save people we are not talking about if you just believe in god or you're sincere that it's going to work if you want to know how narrow consider these two verses john 14 6 jesus said i am the way singular the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me as our world becomes more politically uh, correct and committed to never making people feel wrong, never making people feel bad, accepting and tolerating everything, there has never been another statement in all of human history that approaches the exclusivity of this one statement from Jesus. Imagine what he said. He basically said, every single person will go to hell unless they come through me could you imagine something more exclusive than that I mean that that is that could sound to people like one of the most hateful intolerant statements that has ever been made every single person will go to hell if they do not look to me and my sacrifice to be saved I can't imagine something more exclusive or intolerant than that which it would be if it wasn't true the moment Jesus's words become true It becomes the most loving statement someone could hear because now Jesus is saying, come to me to be saved. Pass through me to reach heaven. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. One name, that's it. Of all the names, of all the ways, of all the paths, Jesus says, He is the only one. There is just Him, just His name. That is unbelievably narrow. Biblical Christianity is extraordinarily narrow. It is so narrow that there is only one way, and that's why we must strive to enter it, to avoid any of those other doors that would lead to destruction. The next part of lesson three striving is required to enter through the narrow door because part two of pride because of pride on one hand we could say that it's easy to be saved because there's nothing that we must do we would say that nothing is required but i want to submit something to you and before you label me a heretic just give me some latitude here and hear me out when we say there's nothing required to be saved i don't think we mean that as literally as it sounds there are actually some significant requirements to be saved i wouldn't say there's any works you don't need to be baptized or start an orphanage or take communion so many times or pray so much or have frequented church enough times but there are some incredible requirements to be saved you must stop believing the lie that you have believed your entire life that you are a righteous person. For many people that is an incredible paradigm shift you can no longer trust in your own righteousness you must actually acknowledge that you deserve hell what kind of requirement is that that you must be able to look at yourself and say i do not deserve to go to heaven i deserve to go to hell here's another requirement we have to recognize that we're not good enough that there's nothing we could do in our own effort to save ourselves that is also another incredible revelation for people to be able to recognize that they can never go to church enough that they could never be good enough that they could never do enough works to be saved and here's another one we have to recognize that we're sinners who need to be saved and jesus is the only savior who can save us that means denying that there's any other way. That means acknowledging that salvation only comes through Christ and saying that everything else out there is a path that leads to hell. That's another incredible revelation, or and I will even say an incredible requirement for people to be saved. They must acknowledge that Jesus is the Savior that God has provided, that there is no other way to be saved. And what does much of this take that many people don't have? It takes a humility it takes a humility to say i am a sinner who deserves hell and there are many people who will not make that confession have you ever thought that to confess jesus as lord and savior is to confess that you are a sinner who needs to be saved and there are plenty of people who do not have the humility to make that confession they are too filled with pride it's too difficult for them now there are some people and they might not look like terrible sinners to us in fact not only might they not look like terrible sinners they could actually look fairly what righteous or moral to us they could be pious but they don't have the humility to be saved and the major obstacle for them is not all of the murder they've committed or adultery they've engaged in it is simply their pride do me a favor and briefly turn a few chapters to the right to Luke eighteen. They're the perfect example of this. Luke 18, verse 9. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Just one verse. Jesus taught this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. What does that mean? it means that they were so they swelled with so much pride they could not be saved they could not acknowledge their sinfulness in particular who was Jesus preaching this parable to the religious leaders the religious leaders are the premier example of what we're talking about now let me ask you this when the religious leaders went to hell do they go because of all of the adultery they've engaged in no do they go because of all of the murders they've committed no do they go because of all of the theft all of the things they've stolen no they go because of their pride their pride is that obstacle that blocks them from entering the narrow door they lack the humility to confess their sin and need to be saved the next part of lesson three striving is required to enter through the narrow door because part three we love sin we love sin go ahead and turn to the right to the next book to John chapter 3. we will come back to Luke at the end one book to the right to John chapter 3. I I've mentioned this before so I'll make it I'll make it quick one of the weaknesses of the English language that we only have one word for love and so I say that I love popcorn or I love wrestling I use the same word when I say that I love my wife now obviously you're all hoping that I love my wife differently than I love popcorn and wrestling right uh, and even among my family members I love my children differently than I love my wife or I love my parents differently than I love my children and so it is a weakness that we're just sort of blind to but it's a weakness that isn't is not uh, present in the Greek language where they had multiple words for love they had a word Eros were related to our word erotic which refers to that physical attraction for someone they had they had storge, which is family love the love that we would have for our children not not a love of any sort of attraction and then they had um, Phileo which was the friendship love the love that you would have for a close friend of yours versus your your spouse the love that we're most familiar with is agape this was the highest form of love it is a love that is sacrificial in other words it's a love that sacrifices it is unconditional in other words it's a love that loves regardless of what the object does or doesn't do and in the bible it's used a few different ways and i chose this chapter because we actually get to see the way agape is used in a few different relationships so look in john chapter 3 probably the most well-known verse 16 for God so loved this is agape the world I mean talk about a sacrificial and unconditional love he loved the world so much that he was willing to give or sacrifice his own son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life so do you see here how God's love for the world is an agape sacrificial unconditional love he was willing to sacrifice and let me ask you this what did you do for god to be willing to sacrifice his son for you you rebelled against him you sinned. basically do you know what you contributed to your salvation the sin that required you to be saved and so god loved us with an incredible unconditional love that loves us regardless of what we have or haven't done or been or haven't been like look in verse 35 agape is used to describe god's love for his sin or for his son excuse me verse 35 the father loves this is agape he loves the son and he has given all things into his hand so god has an unconditional love for his son now there's one other relationship that agape is used for in scripture it's also in john 3 and it's man's love for sin look in verse 19. this is the judgment The light has come into the world and people loved this is agape loved the darkness or loved sin rather than the light because their works were evil so agape describes God's love for the world God's love for his son and man's love for his sin and it makes perfect sense to say that we have agape or unconditional sacrificial love for sin let me say it one more time as much sense as it makes to say that God has a sacrificial unconditional love for the world it makes as much sense to say that man has a sacrificial and unconditional love for sin man loves sin unconditionally in that we love sin regardless of the guilt consequences suffering discipline that we experience as a consequence of our sin i was with one of my children yesterday and he was sharing with me i think he it was on right now media or answers in genesis these individuals who were talking about what they had suffered because of the sin that they had engaged in these young these young men and my son was saying that he was shocked by what these people were willing to suffer for the sin that they were engaged in and have you ever listened to someone and you've seen the grief uh, the horror associated of what they've experienced because of their sin but they won't repent from it they'll continue to engage in it and then so we come back down to earth we can think of the times in our lives where we have chosen sin regardless of what it gives us in return that is an unconditional love we have for sin we will do almost anything for it regardless of what it does for us the sacrificial nature of our love for sin what will man not sacrifice for sin can you think of anything man will not sacrifice for sin man will sacrifice health he'll sacrifice wealth dignity jobs children parents marriages friendships churches any relationship even a relationship with the lord man will sacrifice we have an incredible agape love for sin there's almost nothing that we will not sacrifice for sin agape loves in a very unreciprocated way or in other words agape loves even when it's not reciprocated god loved you while you were yet sinners god didn't start loving you because you loved him right so God has an agape love for us that he loves us even when we don't love him. And that's the love that we have for sin. We love sin even though it doesn't love us in return. In fact, the wages of sin is what what do you get for your love for sin? What does sin give you in return? You're looking at sin and you're loving it, you're giving up everything for it. Just this deep affection for sin and sin says, "Here's what you get. You know, I'll give you death. I'll ruin your life. I'll ruin your relationships." we have an unreciprocated love for sin and because of man's love for sin he will choose it over christ people hear the gospel they learn of the narrow way the narrow door but they don't want to walk through it because they don't want to repent and that is the major requirement for salvation repentance just as a uh, as you cannot walk in two different directions you cannot be saved While refusing to repent of your sin, you can't cling to a Savior for your sin while clinging to your sin. It's not to say that we will ever be free from sin on this side of heaven, but it is to say you must be sick and tired of your sin to look for a Savior from it. Because if you want to be saved from your sin, while you want to hold to your sin, you don't want to be saved from your sin. You don't want a Savior because of our love for sin, we will choose it over Christ. People will hear the gospel. They will be told the way to be saved, but they do not want to turn from that sin they love. They don't want to repent. And the, the door is so narrow that what? Here's a way to think of it. You can't fit through it with a love for sin. You just, that's how narrow that door is. None of us will ever be completely free from sin on this side of heaven, but we must repent and turn from it or we will never fit through that door look at Luke 13 24 one more time strive to enter through the narrow door for many I tell you will seek to enter and they will not will not be able now because it says that we're to strive to enter and there are many who will strive and not be able to if we've been able to enter through the narrow door let's just be honest we might be tempted to feel how Kind of proud a little or maybe a little better than others because we've been able to enter when they weren't able to and this brings us to lesson four we should be thankful if we have entered through the narrow door we should be thankful if we have entered through the narrow door because we've been able to enter and because striving is required maybe we we strive enough to be saved and we feel proud we think of others and they just didn't strive as much as us they didn't try as hard as us they weren't as good as us that's why they didn't get saved and we got saved because of how good we are we could be tempted to feel that way I don't want us to we should feel the opposite thankful and humble so I'll share something with you I was saved in my early 20s it wasn't until my second year te- teaching elementary school that I found the narrow way that the narrow way the narrow door was introduced to me I had no familiarity with it um, prior to that because i had been Catholic and I thought that we were saved by our works instead of by grace through faith and I'll briefly tell you about this school year the second year teaching when I became a Christian so not many teachers at the elementary I'm only going to give you three names to remember not many teachers at the elementary school level um, and so or not many male teachers excuse me not many male teachers at the elementary school level and so my principal put me next to another male teacher. I taught fifth grade he taught first grade and that was Elwin Ordway and you don't normally put fifth grade teachers and first grade teachers near each other they usually a a wing for first grade a wing for fifth grade he put us together I thought it was coincidental Uh, now I look back and it was completely the providence of God that he put me next to this man that would share the gospel with me we became very good friends and at that time um, my assistant principal was also a Christian and he was attending a Christian church and he would invite me to this church and the pastor's daughter was another teacher at this school so the assistant principal went to this church and the pastor of that church his daughter went to this school with me she was a teacher there and we were taking our classes in the evening at Chapman University together and she was sharing the gospel with me so I had my sister principal I had this female teacher named Holly and then I had Elwyn who were all sharing the gospel with me apparently God must have known how um, stubborn I was and that I needed three strong Christians to be witnessing to me they're regularly inviting me to church I would not take them up on their offer I would tell them you know go ahead and keep asking me uh, but I wouldn't go and then finally as most of you know my brother passed away of this drug overdose and I was devastated and my assistant principal said hey i've been talking to you about coming to church for a while now and now i really think you should because my pastor his brother died when he was about your age and just you don't even have to come back to church again just come to church to talk to him you you're you're really weary trying to determine why all these things have happened you're you're suffering just come and give him a little bit of time and see if he can help you and so i went to church that first sunday after my after my brother died because i wanted to talk to this pastor about his brother's death and i thought that he would have some answers for me so i go to this church didn't even bring a bible because i never brought a bible uh, to church in the catholic church and someone hands me it was actually someone handed me a precious moments bible <laughs> this little pink girl's bible <laughs> so i'm sitting there and the, i don't know where to turn to find anything and the pastor reads this verse and explains it and reads it and explains it and it just changed my life it was it was the the 180 for me i didn't even get to talk to the pastor about my brother that sunday i don't even think i talked to him about my brother the next sunday but i remember sitting there and he was preaching and for the first time in my life i thought i can understand the word of god i believe that god is speaking to me through it i didn't know how many other people were in the room that sunday but that was just a meeting between the lord and myself as he shared with me through through the word and i thought i heard from him and i'd been in the catholic church where the Bible's very taboo cryptic you know only a pope or the or the priest can tell you what to believe and don't try to read the bible for yourself and so to me it was just very uh, dramatic and i left that day and i was already looking forward to coming back the second the next sunday i, I was counting the days so i could go back that next sunday heard the gospel soon after that and I hesitate to say this you don't think more of me than you ought but it just really bore witness to me I recognized this is the truth I have not heard the truth before the the narrow door had not been shown to me before but this is it this is how man is saved it is not by being good enough it is by what Christ has done for us it was so contrary to anything I had ever heard and I recognize that if I had died before this I would have went to hell Where previously i had always thought i had been a good person who would go to heaven or maybe at the worst purgatory to work off some of my sins i thought i would have went to hell if i would have died before this so let me ask you this when i became a christian how did i feel i felt thankful i felt humble i felt grateful that god chose me to learn of his son i did not feel proud I did not feel that I was better than anyone else in fact I felt like I was worse than others but I felt like I dodged this bullet I felt like for reasons that I would never understand on this side of heaven God allowed me to learn the gospel and repent of my sins and put my faith in his son Jesus Christ I felt thankful and I felt humbled and so when I read verse 24 and I'm coming to the end of my sermon. When I read verse 24 and it says, many will seek to enter, but they will be unable to do so. How do you think I feel about being able to enter and how should you feel if you have been able to enter? Humble. Thankful. Don't take it for granted. For some of you, and I include my children in this category and I wouldn't try to remind them of this so I hope they're listening and I hope the other children are listening if you are raised in a Christian family or if you have been a Christian for very long you can forget how blessed you are to be part of those people who have been shown the narrow door because there are many who haven't I mean that's why we still have missionaries There's still work to do. That's why we're still here. There are people who have not been pointed toward that narrow door. So do not take that for granted. Recognize that by God's grace, he's allowed you to be one of those few people who can strive to enter. Now, it would be foolish for me to think that everyone listening to this sermon has entered through the narrow door. So I want to close by taking you back to Jesus's command in verse 24. He says, strive to enter through that narrow door for many i tell you will seek to enter and will not be able to if you have taken for granted or thought lightly of where you're going to spend eternity look at what jesus says here you need to strive you need to agonize to be sure that you're one of those who has entered through that door if you have any questions or i can pray for you in any way i'll be up front after service and i'd consider it a privilege to be able to speak with you father we thank you so much that you provided a narrow door We're thankful that you provided a way for man to be saved. Sometimes people say, why is there only one way? But we should be thankful that there is a way. You didn't have to provide one at all. Uh, And it's a beautiful one, one in which your son did the work for us. He acted on on our behalf. He took the initiative. You sought us out. You're the one who pursues us, Lord. We thank you so much for that. We thank you for the gospel. And we thank you that it's a great privilege for me to be able to share it and i would pray for anyone here who hasn't entered through that narrow door that they would that they would not take lightly that there are many people who will not enter and that they don't want to be among those lord and so if there's anyone here who hasn't entered lord convict them about that we thank you so much for the gospel and even the fellowship it provides we enter now into a potluck like in a time of fellowship and let us not take that for granted lord as we grow in our relationships with our brothers and sisters in christ i thank you for these verses they became precious to me this week as i uh, the last couple of weeks actually as i studied them and reflected on this and so help us to strive to press through that narrow door and we ask these things in your son's name amen